everybody, and, uh, and if anyone is new, welcome. I think some people are new, and um, we are in the middle, but I'll try to review enough that even if you weren't here for uh, the, the other classes, there shouldn't be much of a problem. First, uh, since I do take any question, even if it's totally off topic, so I will address two questions that people asked me right before. Uh, the first, again, nothing to do with our topic, but I'll address it very briefly. Uh, the question of um, if somebody was buried, buried already in Chutzlaretz? If somebody was buried in Chutzlaretz, and now the family or whoever wants to relocate the body and bring the body for burial in Eretz Yisrael, is there any particular problem with uh, exhuming a dead body that's already been, been buried? First of all, it is important to know that although it's better to be in Eretz Yisrael when you're alive than when you're dead, uh, but the truth is, as we see from Yaakov and we see from Yosef, we see it in the Chumash, there is a special merit to even be buried in the land of Israel. Uh, and there are different reasons. Some say if you're buried in Chutz Laaretz, the body will have to be dragged through the you know, you know, thousands of miles in order to experience resurrection of the dead that only, appear, only happens in Eretz Yisrael. And even spiritually, it is said that being buried in Eretz Yisrael gives a certain level of atonement. So it is a good thing, generally, to be buried in Eretz Yisrael. On the other hand, there's another principle, that's why you have a problem, that once a mace is buried, once a person is buried, it is not proper to disturb their arrest, so to speak. Uh, that is said to give great distress to a neshama for the body to be uprooted. The Neshama thinks it's going to be summoned to judgment and punishment and the like. So the halachic question is, how do you balance two principles when they are in contradiction? Right? Principle one is, it's a good thing to be buried in Eretz Yisrael, spiritually. Principle number two is, it's a sin, generally, to uproot a mace. So, as I always say, whenever you're in doubt, and if you're taking a halachic test, and you simply answer machlokas, an argument, you know, you're always going to get the right answer, because essentially, there is a machlokas. Now, Rav Moshe Feinstein was considered to be one of the great, great halachic decisors of the 20th century, he was actually a very good friend of the, of the Rebbe as well, uh, takes the position that you're actually not supposed, unless, unless they made a condition at the time they bury, I don't know if you ever heard this, they sometimes bury a person and they make a condition, though the family will actually say at the funeral that when we are able to relocate the body, we will. That's called a tanai. And, right. and if somebody does that, it's okay. So if you made a tanai, then it's okay. Then it's okay. But Rav Feinstein took the position that in the absence of a tanai, if the person was buried with the intention that the chutzlars would be permanent, then you're not supposed to move him. Uh, other opinions do differ. Other opinions say, no matter what, you can always move to Eretz Yisrael. But I want to mention another idea that's, that's very, very interesting. Let's take the Rebbe, for example. You know, uh, the, Rebbe, the Rebbe is not uh, buried in Eretz Yisrael, and his father-in-law, the Friedek Rebbe, is not buried in Eretz Yisrael. Now, why not? You know, why not? Why, why aren't they buried in Eretz Yisrael? So there actually is an idea that it's very, very important for someone uh, who has disciples, who has Hasidim, who has many, many people who look to them, that they be buried in a place where many, many people can go and pray by their kever. Now, although the Rebbe has many Hasidim, of course, in Eretz Yisrael, but more are in Chutzlaretz. And consequently, a tzaddik will often give up 
the opportunity, just as a tzaddik gives up many things for the benefit of the Am Yisrael, a tzaddik may give up the opportunity to be an Eretz Yisrael in order to be of service. Like a Rebbe continues to be a Rebbe even after his physical death. Now, to a lesser degree, to a lesser degree, that can even apply to parents in which if all of a person's children are located in Chutz Laaretz, and if he would be buried in, he or she would be buried in Eretz Yisrael, the children would not have the opportunity to visit the kever. That might be a reason not to relocate. So that has to, you know, that depends on the situation and the like. Now, let me point out that in an opposite case, you are allowed to relocate. Let's say, for example, uh, somebody was buried in Chutz Laaretz, and then all of the children moved to Eretz Israel or even moved to another state in the U.S. So you are actually permitted to relocate a kever to make it closer to the family. Even if you didn't have uh, intention? And that's even without it tonight, that's right, because that's an understood and condition. when you have the intention, who has the intention? The person who passes needs No, no, it, 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 would be, it would be the, the, the family or the children who have the responsibility for burying the dead, that they, they can make that determination, as it were. Now, obviously, if their parents said, I don't want to be moved, then that should be respected if for whatever reason. Or if the parents specifically left instructions, I do want to be moved, that's Yaakov, right? That's the case of Yaakov and, and Yosef. Then we listen to those instructions. But in the absence of an instruction one way or the other, there needs to be, according to Rav Moshe, a condition articulated at the time of the burial and would actually be said out loud, meaning they would say at the funeral, we are burying uh, on the condition that we can relocate to Eretz Yisrael when that becomes possible, yeah. So does it make a difference how long the person's been buried? Uh, actually, it does, it does not. Uh, it does not. In fact, in some ways, the longer is better. Uh, we do have, for example, a number of Gedolim who were relocated from Poland to here, but that was a little different. That's because in Poland, there really was a risk that their bodies would be desecrated. So that's a little different. That's not Stam taking people from a properly protected cemetery to Eretz Israel. That might be stricter. But certainly, if a grave is facing desecration, uh, for sure you're allowed to relocate it. Yes, yeah, so, but, but I'm saying that they've taken Gedolim that uh, died you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, sometimes more than uh, 200 years ago. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, there's sometimes there have even been miracles where they discovered that a body that was buried 200 years ago did not decompose. That that's a really a, a supernatural miracle of only the greatest, the that greatest that decom. Um, I heard a story like that. Yeah. Sorry, no, that's a great uh, that is a great uh, miracle, uh, but it happens. So it is recorded that there were great great sadikim who did never who never decomp their body never decomposed at all. Yeah. When you when you said like uh, certain conditions allow it, what does that exactly mean? Like when they no, I didn't say certain it? conditions. I said certain rabbis allow it. No, yeah. no. You yeah. like when when like the family buried them, let's say in New York, until they their certain conditions allow them to move it to Israel or something. Do you mean uh, like they can't afford it at the moment? Or yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That, that's what I mean. In other words, either they couldn't them? they couldn't afford it because uh, it is expensive. Of course, it's more expensive if you do it later. Yeah. <laughs> it costs. I mean, just to give you an idea of what it costs. If you want to relocate a um, person that's buried in America 
you want, and they're already buried, and you want to move them to Israel, we're talking about uh, thirty to forty thousand dollars. It's not oh, wow. uh, it's not a cheap thing. If, on the other hand, you move them initially to Israel, it's around ten. It's still not cheap, but it's ten thousand dollars. So it's a lot cheaper to do it earlier than than later. But sometimes people literally don't yeah. have the money at, at at this point. You know, ten thousand dollars just to fly the body, or like. Well, it's not just funeral. the flying; it's including the the funeral, the whole oh, thing. Yeah, whole, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fly, I mean, flying the body is not that much. It's not yeah. more. I don't think they charge more for dead than alive. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, and you know, uh, now you women don't have to worry about this if you're a boss Cohen, but if you're a man that's a Cohen, you got to be very, very careful, because uh, a Cohen is not allowed to be in contact with a dead body. So uh, Elal often has uh, dead bodies that are being transported to Israel for funerals. So if you're a Kohen, you have to be, and you're going to Israel, you have to be very, very sure. Yeah. And the law knows this, and the law will tell you. But of course, they don't. In other words, they don't know until around three hours before the flight. They, they don't know, you know, because people die, you know, at any time. But you need to check if you're a Kohen. You need to check uh, within three hours before the flight if there's a dead body. Otherwise, you're going to have to be bumped. Different yeah, like that's true. This is a complicated issue, and that is remember that the, the law of not coming in contact with the dead is that if there's a common roof over you and a dead body, let's say there would be a dead body here, right? So uh, we're under the same roof. That's called the same tent. So even if the dead body is in a the, the uh, baggage compartment, right, under the plane, but ultimately it's all covered by the roof of the plane. So as a result, the tuma, the impurity, goes into the plane, so if you're not a Kohen, that's not a problem. If you're a Kohen, uh, that is a very big problem. So Kohanim cannot travel on airplanes that have dead bodies on them. Now, it's really only a problem with the law because I, I, I mean, I, I mean, it can happen. Some other airline might carry a dead body, but it's very, very rare. So the Kohen doesn't even have to worry about that. But Allah is the one that, that does it. So you have to be careful. Now, there's another issue, which is even uh, harder to avoid. And that is technically, if a plane flies over a, cemetery, a Jewish cemetery, <laughs> the tumor goes up 30,000 feet into the plane. Yeah, so, so they're actually... It's not the same roof. Huh? It's not the same roof. Well, it becomes the roof because the, the plane becomes a roof that is over the dead body and the passengers in the plane. The plane, the so plane what, what becomes the. So in such a situation, El Al had to. Well, um, there are different. You know, you have to keep. You have to be aware of this. There are flight patterns that they avoid yeah. cemeteries. How is, but how could you like, like when you're so high up, like you're over the set? Yeah. In other words, there's no the there's no vertical limits. You you could be in the moon. You know, I mean, uh, if you're directly over a, a dead body. Well, you know, okay, but what you know, what you know is what you know. Meaning to say, when you're uh, when you know that you're passing over a cemetery, a coin has to be very, very careful. So th- this has been a big, big problem in Israel because um, now, if, if flying over a non-Jewish cemetery is not a problem, uh, because the rule that uh, a corpse conveys impurity by flying over it only applies to Jewish corpses. Uh, it does not apply to non-Jewish corpses because this is a, an interesting idea that the laws of impurity of death correlate with the magnitude of holiness of life. Mm-hmm. 
meaning the holier the life, it's like a vacuum. The greater the vacuum is when there's death. So as a result, we are actually lenient with, with non-Jewish uh, corpses with respect to Kohen's. Yeah. What is a Kohen supposed to do if God forbid he's flying on a plane? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, he, should ju- he should jump off, of course. No. <laughs> No, I mean, listen. Listen. The, the answer is. I mean, the answer is. Uh, you know, there is common. There is common sense in Judaism as well. Uh, meaning, he's stuck. This was a circumstance over which he had no control. Uh, there's nothing he can do about it. So Hashem does not consider that an avera. I mean, let, let, let me ask you. Let's, let's take a simpler case. Let's say a kohen is in a room with people, and somebody dies. So there, the halacha is, he is supposed to leave the room as soon as he becomes aware of it when he doesn't have the option of leaving the room because he's on an airplane. So he does have to... The only thing I can tell you is, I think he would have to request the, uh, the uh, crew that he should be given the right to be the first one off the plane. When it lands. That's the most that I could say. Other than that... No, no, no. Because once he's under the same roof, it makes no difference if he's one inch away or, or 100 feet away, as long as he's under the same roof. So the only thing I could say is he's, obli- he's obligated to request an expedited, dep- uh, you know, uh, leaving the plane. When that happens. Now I'll give you an interesting shaila about this, about kavod uh, habrios. Kavod habrios is respect for human dignity. Let's say a kohen is sleeping uh, without his clothes or he's in his underwear, whatever it is, and God forbid somebody died in the house. And I, you know, I'm not a Cohen, but I know the person died. Uh, what do I tell the Cohen? See, here's the problem. If I tell the Cohen, you've got to leave the house because somebody died, he would have to run out naked. So the Ramah... Huh? No, so the Ramah... He's not allowed... To, it, once he becomes aware there's a dead body, he cannot put on his clothes. But the Ramah says, I'm allowed not to tell him what his situation is. I have to wake him up. And I tell him, get dressed, we have to leave the house right away. I shouldn't say the reason why. So even if he suspects, but he doesn't know. So he's allowed under those circumstances to get dressed and then leave as long as I did not tell him there's a dead body. If I told him there's a dead body, he would have to jump out of the window. No, you know, leave safely. And he would not have time. I mean, he could grab a blanket if, if, if that wouldn't delay him at all, if grabbing a blanket does not slow him up, he can do that or grab his clothes, but he would not be allowed to take the time to get dressed. Yeah. Oh, so there, yeah. No, no, so there, so there, okay, there I have to mention, so there, I mean, that's very tragic, but halakhically, that's a very easy situation because a Kohen is allowed to become tame with respect to relatives. That includes wife, son, daughter, father, mother. So consequently, uh, he can certainly be with his wife uh, as she's dying or when Sister she dies. Brother? Huh? Sister brother. Sister brother, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that would not be a problem. Uh, the only problem would be if he would be a high priest, which we don't have today, <laughs> he would have to get out. But a regular Kohen does not have that problem. And women don't have that problem. So if you're a Bas Kohen, uh, you have no problem with that. In fact, they tell the story, the great Chafetz Chaim was a Kohen. 
and his uh, youngest daughter used to say that, you know, it's hard living with a great, great tzaddik sometimes because he, he, he wants you to be on a high level. So sometimes she has to get away from her father. It's funny to say. So when she had to get away from her father, she would go into the town cemetery because she knew she, she knew that he, he wouldn't be able to follow her, follow her there. <laughs> yeah, I guess in Radin, which is a small town, there wasn't a lot of things to do. So if you went to the cemetery, there was no like Ben Yehuda Street or whatever. Yeah. Yep, yep, exactly so right. Two separate roofs. No, but exactly right. This is very important. The idea of a common roof, a common roof, you and the Cohen and the dead body, that could apply to a tree. If trees overhang graves and a sidewalk or a road, then the Cohen cannot walk under the tree or under the or drive under the tree because the tree itself is a common roof. Uh, an overhang can be but, a common roof. But he's in the car. He's driving in his car, and then there's Okay, so, so it's very complicated, meaning he is under the same roof as the mace, but he's then in a separate domain under yeah. it. So for various reasons, um, objects that are made of metal, like a car, do not comprise a separation. So therefore, uh, he's under the roof. He is separated by a metal barrier. That's not going to help him. The, the metal becomes porous, so to speak, with respect to the impurity. So that's very important. Uh, that's why you'll find in Israel, it'll, it'll, only in Israel, certain roads will be labeled not for Kohens. And the reason is because there are over, you know, if you're going by a cemetery, there's overhanging trees. So they have Kohen roots and non-Kohen roots for driving. Only in Israel, but, uh, because they're, they're aware of all of these questions. Yeah. Like, a female, like, touches a dead body. Yeah. And then, can she marry a Kohen? Or oh, okay, okay. So, so remember, him? okay, this is important. Uh, remember that the Kohen is prohibited only in what we would call direct tumor from the mace. That either means touching the corpse, moving the corpse, or being under the same roof. But a Kohen is allowed to touch a person who was in contact with a dead body. So even if the person has no way of becoming pure today, because we don't have the red heifer, and we don't have... See, once you're tummy with the mace, there's no way you can become pure until you have the ashes of the red heifer. But that makes no difference, because as long as the Kohen himself did not come in direct contact with the corpse, he is allowed to be with other people. By the way, uh, according to the Gemara... Sorry? Sorry, how many more red cows do we have to find? Weren't there like six that we had to find from a ship? Well, there, there, there are ten altogether. Okay. So we've had nine, and uh, Mashiach will bring the tenth one. Yes, yes. But in order to... See, there's a catch-22 with the red heifer. In order to make a red heifer, you have to have pure Kohanim. So how, does a, how do you become pure if there's no red heifer ashes to sprinkle you on? So the truth is, Eliyahu Navi is going to bring back some remnants of the old... Paradumas, he will purify Kohanim, and then they'll be able to make a new one. So you can't make a new one until you're pure. In order to be pure, you have to be sprinkled with the Paraduma. So, so Eliyahu Navi, who is pure, will bring back some remnants of the old ashes that were not used up. And then, so, 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 so
No, and then and then uh, he'll purify the Kohanim. By what? Yeah, yes, he will. But but for, but for that, all you have to do is go to the mikvah. Meaning, oh. the tuma of paraduma is a lesser tuma than the tuma of a dead body. Yeah. If, 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 if there's any que- any question yeah. that the person might be alive and the Kohen could keep him alive, save his life, then he's allowed to even violate the possible laws of Tumah for Pikuach Nefesh. In other words, just like you can violate Shabbos to save a life, then how much more so you can violate these laws against Tumah. So even if it's only a one in a thousand chance that he could save a life, uh, he could certainly do what he can do. If, on the other hand, there's nothing he can do, and it's only a question of calling 911, then he should, st- he should step outside. In other words, if it makes no difference. But if there's any way that he thinks it may make a difference that he's there, that he can do a mouth-to-mouth or CPR or something, uh, then even if there's a 90% chance the guy's dead, if there's a 10% chance he might be alive, he should go ahead and, and do it. Yeah. So in that, let's say a similar instance like that, like, <clears throat> The cocaine, let's say he knows the Heimlich maneuver and the guy's choking and he goes and whatever you do with your hands to save that choking person or mouth to mouth. Yeah. And then the person like survives, but as he's like doing it, he dies. Is that like what happens? The Kohen did. The Kohen. At that point, he should walk out. But the Kohen committed no sin because the Kohen did what what Hashem commanded him to do. I mean, if a person eats on Yom Kippur because the doctor said he could endanger his life if he doesn't, then when he eats on Yom Kippur, he's doing a mitzvah. If he fasts on Yom Kippur and dies, he did a big sin. He's considered to be a suicide. He, He he thinks he's being so righteous. By fasting on Yom Kippur, he is violating Hashem's law. So a Kohen who becomes Tame to a dead body because he's trying to save a life committed no sin. Uh, he did a mitzvah. Similarly, if the guy was choking and he knew the Heimlich maneuver and said, like, oh, I'm a Kohen, if you die, if he you would, walked he, out, he, would that be a sin? He would be a murderer. Yeah. Yeah, he, that's a tremendous sin. That's, a, that's the yeah. example. The Gemara gives an example, not about a Kohen, but it's the same principle, called a Chassid Shotah. What's a chassid shota? An idiot, pious man. A pious man that's an idiot. And what's the example of a pious man that's an idiot? A woman is drowning. And he could rescue her. But he says, I don't touch women. So he thinks he's pious. He thinks he's righteous. He's an idiot. To save a life, of course you save a life. Or, you know, a more, maybe a more common example might be, uh, it's icy and an older woman slips on the ice. But the man said, oh, I don't, uh, I don't you know, touch a woman. That's uh, totally, uh, totally wrong. Right? And under, those, under those circumstances, even though it's not an immediate life-threatening thing, but you're doing it uh, because somebody might get hurt. Yeah. Is shivering yes still a thing after the, one of the parties is no longer alive? Uh, like, uh, no, the gear of a dead body? Like, is, is there a man <laughs> 
one could like bring the body out or whatever. Like, yeah. Does it matter which one of them does? Well, I can tell you for sure. If both of them are dead, there's no problem. Uh, that's for sure. But <laughs> no, I, <laughs> no, I, I understand. Yeah. No, no. So, so the truth is, there is there is no Eastern Nagia. However, however, there are customs of mourning in which men do not carry uh, women's bodies and women do not carry men's bodies. That's, that's a custom. Well, actually, that's, that's not correct. It only goes the other way. Women do not carry men's bodies, but men do carry women's bodies. Uh, but the custom is that a woman does not carry the, the body of a man. But that's a minna. That is not Nagia, per se. Well, that's correct, because remember that the, the, the isode of Nagia is touching that could come to improper sexual behavior. So once somebody's dead, we're not, we're not afraid of necrophilia. We're not afraid they'll, uh, you know, have relations uh, with a dead person. So Nagia does not apply. That's why, for example, to take an extreme example, it would certainly be permitted, uh, you know, for a man to even kiss uh, a dead Woman, if, or whatever, but but again, the minog is not, that we don't do that at all. We don't kiss the dead. I mean, that's the general man to man or woman to woman as well. Uh, we don't uh, we don't do that. But that's not because of negia uh, per se. Okay, so that was uh, the issue of Cohen. Again, not, nothing to do with our topic, but okay, I'm happy to uh, to digress. Uh, it doesn't does not bother me. Um, by the way, I, I don't know. If, have you ever gone? Have, have you ever taken a trip to Poland to see the concentration camps and other things? So you actually, you know, it's really it's such a horrendous thing. To this very day, to this very day, you find bone fragments. You go to Auschwitz. And this is 70 years later, and there's still like pieces of bone that are lying around different places. And number one. Any part of a Jewish body is supposed to be buried. If you find bone fragments, you know, you don't take them as souvenirs. You know, they, they should have a kavura. And number two, Kohanim may, have, Kohanim may potentially have certain problems hanging around or visiting those particular sites if there are going to be... Uh, I mean, the bone fragments are almost certainly Jewish. I mean, 95% chance. I mean, there were non-Jews who died in concentration camps too, but uh, there were only a very, very small percentage of, of people. So uh, it's something to, uh, to be aware of if you, uh, again, it's, it's not halakhically relevant to you, uh, but something to be aware of if, uh, for people who are Kohani. Uh, yeah? Well, there, there would be an issue, but on the other hand, I, I think that we could assume almost certainly that they are Jewish. I mean, I, I don't consider that a real doubt. If there would be a doubt, there would be an issue. In fact, this is an issue, you know, this is an issue in Israel now. I mean, let me tell you the actual issue. Uh, you know that we have many, many, many Russians in this country. In fact, uh, English is the uh, fourth language in Israel, right? If you, if you call up for, for instructions, no, Hebrew is number one. Arabic is number two because that's a legal language here. Russian is number three. And English is only number four. So we Americans have been demoted. We're no longer right. And sometimes there are, there are you know, numbers that will only give you three languages. They don't, they, you know, four is too expensive. So they may not give you instructions in English. So you may be in, you know, may be in trouble unless you know Hebrew, Arabic, or Russian. Now, a huge problem with Russians is that although every Russian that's come to Israel 
has the term Jew in their passport, their Russian passport. But halachically, halachically, many, many, many Russians are not Jewish because over the 70 years of Stalinist persecution and afterwards, there was a lot of intermarriage. Again, it's not their fault. And uh, many Jewish men married Jewish women, uh, married non-Jewish women. And that means although their kids were legally Jewish in the eyes of the Russians, they're not Jewish because if the mother's not Jewish, they're not Jewish. And they come to Israel under the law of return, which takes them in because if the passport says Jewish, they're Jewish. I mean, legally, legally, but halakhically, they're not Jewish. And uh, they would have to have a conversion. And then you get another problem. Many of them are not religious or don't want to be religious. So how can you convert them if they don't want to be religious? You can't do a fake conversion. Now, many of these Russians who are citizens of the state of Israel and are very, very fine people have served in the Israeli army. They've served in the army and some have died serving in the Israeli army. So when a chayal dies, they are buried in the military cemetery, in Har Herzl, you know, a big one. And uh, that's a Jewish cemetery. And there's a lot of problems. Halakhically, are we allowed to bury an Israeli soldier who was halakhically non-Jewish, but who identified as Jewish in a Jewish cemetery? Halach is normally very strict that you don't bury non-Jews. For example, intermarried couples. Again, if a cemetery is not religious, they'll do it, but a religious cemetery will not allow a non-Jewish wife, spouse, husband or wife, to be buried next to the Jewish husband because you don't have a non-Jew in a Jewish cemetery. So how does that work with soldiers? Now, on one hand, it's enormously humiliating and insulting to tell the family of somebody who died defending Israel that they cannot be buried in a military cemetery. That's very hurtful, and I acknowledge that it's very hurtful. On the other hand, the person's not Jewish. <laughs> so what do you do? So um, the Rabbanut's agonizing over this. This is not a simple question. I think they've created, within the military cemetery, separate areas, but it's still in the military cemetery. That's something you can do. Uh, but that, that's, that's an issue, yeah. Yeah, Drew, yeah, yeah. So, right, right. So, Druzes are, I think, are a different situation. It's not so bad because Druzes have their own religious cemeteries. So, as a result, if you're a Druze, you don't want to be buried in the Jewish cemetery. You want to be buried in the Druze cemetery. So, that's, that, that's how they do it. Yeah. They, they certainly feel right themselves that they suffered more for being Jewish in their life than many Jews. No, listen, I, 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 really, really, I really understand that. I'm not, not, God forbid, I'm not dismissing how, how they would feel, actually how the family would feel, and that's very legitimate. On the other hand, I'm just saying there is a serious halachic problem here. And the same thing is true with a lot of populations, Ethiopian Jews, where, but there it's a little different because the Ethiopian Jews may in fact be Jewish. There's an open question about that. I mean, those who converted are Jewish for sure, but those who didn't convert do have a claim that they may still be Jewish, but that's a big argument, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, but that's, uh, that's kind of one, one issue to uh, keep in mind. How did I get onto this? I, I, don't, I don't remember, but okay. Um, 
there was another question. Oh, that was one of the music. I think that I, I answered. I just mentioned. Okay, later. So let me get back to whatever topic I was talking about. And uh, the thing we were talking about last week, we started talking about organ donation. And let me just remind you of our conclusion. I'm not going to go over all the reasoning, but I'm going to branch out to a new aspect of this. Uh, last week we were discussing not general organ donation. We were discussing live organ donation. That means organ donation while you're still alive. And that would primarily be kidneys. But I can give a kidney while I'm alive and stay alive because uh, I have two kidneys. I can also give partial liver because the liver can regenerate. So I could give half of my liver. In fact, I can give up to, I mean, they don't take this much. You can give up to 80% of your liver because as little as 20% can grow back. And you can also give a partial lung transplant. Partial, obviously. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, bone marrow for sure. Bone marrow and blood uh, you can certainly give because those are renewable. And, uh, right, so we were talking about, uh, these are called live organ uh, donations. And if you remember, just to give you the bottom line, the bottom line is that if this donation could put you in a possible danger in the future, such as if giving a kidney could put a stress on the remaining kidney and put you in a dangerous situation, then the halacha is you're not obligated to put yourself in possible danger possible long-term danger in order to save a person even if that person is in immediate danger. So something like bone marrow and blood where there is no danger to you at all even though bone marrow donation is painful so it would seem that you would be obligated to do that but to give a kidney which theoretically could raise some risks for you in the future you're not obligated to do it Okay, you're not obligated to do it. Nevertheless, even though you're not obligated to do it, the bottom line is it is considered to be a meritorious good thing to do. In other words, you're going beyond the letter of the law because you are giving somebody the opportunity of life. So are you obligated? No. Are you a sinner if I refuse to give a kidney? I'm not. But if I do it, I am doing a great mitzvah. Uh, and that is why within the Orthodox community there are some very fine people who have given kidneys and Baruch Hashem, uh, they're doing well and uh, the recipients are doing well uh, as well. But it is not an obligation. Now, let me connect this to another... Did you want to... You had your hand up? Did you want to say No. Let me connect it to a whole other area which at first glance has no relevance to the topic at all. But actually, it's a very interesting topic in and of itself, and you're going to see a connection indirectly to organ donation. And that is a Mishnah in Masachas Gittin. A Mishnah in Gittin. Now, Gittin is about divorce, but this has nothing to do with divorce. This is just a Mishnah. The Mishnah talks about the mitzvah of Pidyon Shavuyin. Now, what does Pidyon Shavuyin mean? You've heard this phrase? Ransoming of captives. This refers to the idea that Jews were often kidnapped or they were held for hostage by non-Jewish enemies who demanded ransom, who demanded money. And there's a great, great mitzvah 
to ransom captives. Uh, it's such an important mitzvah that you even sell a Torah scroll, you sell the Sefer Torah to raise money for Pidjon Shavuyim. Yeah, so the first word, yeah, we'll see here, is a pay, dalet, yud, vav, final nun, that's pidyon, and the second word is shivuyin, shin, vez, vav, yud, mem, final mem. Pidyon, shivuyin. Right, the redemption of captives, kidnapped people. Thank you. Now, as a little aside, huh? get both uh, both variations. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, oh, you, you have a third way of writing it. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Why? Well, okay. Typically, so okay. Pidion. Okay. Say. Yeah, why owe it? Thank you, thank you. Okay, anyone wants to do it in French or whatever? Okay. okay. Alrighty. Now, as a little aside, I just make make a little mental note of this as an asterisk. Let's take people like Jonathan Pollard or Shalom Rubashkin, people who were languishing in prison. And of course we try to get them out. Baruch Hashem, Rabbi Bashkin was, you know, out and Pollard is out, but Pollard still has, unfortunately, some restrictions. He can't come to Israel. The question is, is it Pidyon Shavuyin to get these people out? So that's a big machlokas. Some say that if somebody has been sentenced for a crime and it was a legitimate legal procedure, that's not pigeon shvoyin. Pigeon shvoyin is kidnappings, hostage takings. Pigeon shvoyin is not people who were sentenced for criminal activity. On the other hand, other people say, well, that might be true if it was a fair trial and a fair conviction. But when you have miscarriages of justice and a tainted procedure, then that's just the same as a legalized kidnapping, right? So many would say that it might be true the Stamazai get a murderer out of jail may not be pigeon shvuyim, but uh, both the Rubashkin case and even the Pollard, Pollard case a long time ago had so many things that were not fair about it. I mean, Pollard, for example. I mean, Pollard, at worst, gave some information to Israel that was classified. But there are people who gave information to the Soviet Union when we were at war. You know, we had a cold war with them, and they, you know, they got much less. You know, they would get five years or something for Pollard to get this life sentence without without parole for giving. You know, again, totally unfair. And Rubashkin as well. Uh, whatever Rubashkin did was some technical immigration stuff, which a million businesses do every day. So yeah, he committed he committed a crime. But this is not a crime that gets a sentence of 20, whatever it was, 27, 27 years. This is a crime that gets six months, you know, something like that. So it makes sense to me 
that a legal proceeding could be so fundamentally unfair that you look at it like you look at it like a kidnapping. Okay, and I think that would be the case for both of them. Okay, so this is called pidyon shvoyim, a very big mitzvah. But then the Mishnah gives a very amazing rule. It says, "We do not ransom captives." for an excessive amount of money. Now, that's a question of definition. If the price is too high, we are not supposed to ransom them. Why is that so? Very strange. The reason the Gemara gives is the following. Because if we give in to excessive demands, that will encourage more kidnappings in the future and in order not to encourage more of those kidnappings in the future the Chachamim enacted a rule that we don't ransom if the demand is excessive now the simple meaning is even if that means and that's going to be the question but the simple interpretation is even if that means the person is going to die. That seems to be what it means. I'll give you an alternative interpretation. Meaning, essentially, what Chazal enacted was we have to let the one person die because if we give in, we are going to endanger many more people in the future. So, in a sense, this person is sacrificed for the needs of the greater good in the future. Now, let me draw an analogy. Today, these kidnappings are not in the context of ransom so much, but they're in the context of hostage release. It's a very, very similar type of problem. Uh, the most famous case, but there have been many cases, unfortunately, is Gilad Shalit. So Gilad Shalit was a soldier, is a soldier, in the Israeli army. He was taken prisoner by terrorists and the terrorists and he was held for a number of years and the terrorists agreed to release him only if Israel would release I think it was a thousand I don't remember the number a thousand prisoners was he the brother? Uh, was he the brother? the uh, twin brother that like went to save him couldn't, and they're still holding on to his body in no, he, no that's not him that must be somebody else Gilad Shalit is out Gilad Shalit is, is now free so the Israeli government made a decision that they released, again, I, I think it was a thousand, but I, I can't, I'm not 100% sure I don't remember anymore, but they released, let us say, a thousand terrorists in order to get Gilad Shalit back. Now think about this. This is good news and bad news. The good news is, thank God he's safe, thank God he's back. That's a wonderful thing. On the other hand, we did this only by releasing a thousand people who have already murdered Jews. They've already murdered Jews back into the general population. So the question becomes, how many people, now nobody knows the answer to that, how many people are going to be killed? God willing, nobody, but, but, but you don't know. How many people are going to be killed as a result of saving Gilad Shalit. Now, if you look at the Talmudic rule, the Talmudic rule seems to indicate we don't save the one person 
if by saving the one person we will be endangering larger groups in the future. Right? That's why we don't pay excessive ransom. So would it not stand to reason that the same logic that says you don't pay excessive ransom would also argue against hostage releases because that's the same principle. You are endangering a future population by virtue of your desire to save one person. Okay, yeah. Isn't that against the idea though that we don't like give up one life to save many? Like, yeah. Yeah, that's an excellent situation. Uh, because you may say here the Chachamim seem to be playing a numbers game. We will let this one person die because we don't want more people to be endangered. And yet we know in the trolley situation, right, the famous trolley case, I'm driving the trolley, the brakes don't work. Um, if, 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 if I just let the trolley keep on going, it's going to kill five children, but I could divert it onto another track and kill one person. Halacha says, I am not allowed to kill one person in order to save five. I have to let it keep on going. Because halacha says human life is infinite and even if the non-Jews surround the city and they say, give us a Jew that we will kill or we'll kill you all, you have to let the whole city die. So how come here is different? So very, very good question. But there is a big difference. There's a difference between killing somebody and not saving them. Meaning like this. The halacha is clear. You're not allowed to kill one person to save a hundred. But here the question is, who do I save? We're not killing Gilad Shalit. We're just deciding, should we rescue him or not rescue him? So when you're making a rescue decision, you can indeed, and indeed you must, according to this, take into account the long-term risks that other people other people face. But even yeah. if you know for sure that if you don't rescue them, they'll die, aren't you essentially killing them? Right. Well, uh, we would say you're killing them because you, you know they're going to die. On the other hand, in terms of action, you have not committed an action, you have only done inaction, meaning you've killed by inaction. And, uh, that, and in that sense, you're not an active perpetrator. And that would be the difference. Now, this is the standard interpretation, meaning the standard interpretation of this law is you don't pay excessive ransoms even if the person's going to die. Uh, now, yeah? So in that last case, though, are we just to assume that... Like, it's not like those 100 people... I mean, maybe they did, I don't know, but those 100 people that we released who were murderers, yeah. did they, like, say, I'm going to go murder again? Like, maybe they were... Like maybe maybe they did shuvah. <laughs> like, no, no, yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm not saying that, but, like, in the chance, like, is it worth it to, like, risk that one person's life for these Well, that, that's, the, know you know, that's the question. You don't know for sure. That, that's the question. But the truth of the matter is, with the kidnapping, you also didn't know, meaning you're not paying the ransom okay. because you're encouraging yeah. future behaviors, right? That's yeah. also unknown, right? Yeah. But still, okay. Now, this is the standard interpretation. Uh, let me mention that the... Say again? Huh? Were they released in Israel? Like, yes, in Israel. They're like soldiers and citizens? Well, they're not, you know, I think they're West, I mean, they're, they're West Bank. I mean, they're Palestinians. Is the I mean, government uh, watching over them? Like, yeah, the government's trying to watch over them. The truth of the matter is, some, some people, it's already been established that some people have gotten killed by the released terrorists. Now, British wow. has, it's not a huge number, it's not a huge number. Israel is watching them very carefully, but, but some people have died. Silly. Meaning more people have died than, than the person who was rescued. So, I mean, 
So in a pure numerical calculus, it's already been a losing proposition. Now, we don't like to talk about this because you know, we don't want to make Gilad Shalit feel bad. I, I mean, it's not his, his fault, and we're very, very happy that, that he, he's, he's safe and, and the like. But this is an excruciatingly difficult issue, and according to halacha, at least, it would seem that you're not supposed to do that. But let me just mention the other interpretation of the great Sephardic posek of Avadji Yosef. Have you heard of Ravaji Yosef? He's really, he, was, he was the biggest uh, uh, Sephardic rabbi and one of the great rabbis of the generation. He died a few years ago. I think he still has the record for the biggest funeral. You know, funerals are now becoming mega. You know, if you go back to uh, 20 years ago, 100,000 people was a huge levaya. 100,000 people, that's very big. He, he broke the bank. He had 800,000 people at his at levaya. I mean, it's, 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 <laughs> it was just... Uh, Absolutely, absolutely uh, huge. Like, I mean, think about it. how big is Israel? I mean, this is like you know, ten ten percent of the the whole the whole population of the state of Israel uh, was at was at the Levaya. Uh, but he had a different reasoning. His reasoning was this, and I it's not it's not it's not plausible to me. But this is what he says he says that when the Gemara says you don't ransom the captive, that's talking about where they're not going to kill him; they'll just keep him around. But if if by not ransoming him, he is going to die, they're going to kill him. They say, pay the ransom or else. Ravavadya says the opposite. This is totally the opposite. You have to save the definite person that's in danger, and you don't worry about long-term consequences. So according to him, if Gilad Shalit's predicament was that they were going to kill him by a certain date... According to Ravavadja, you Badafka would release the hostages because you don't look at long-term uncertainty when you have a definitive situation. Now, what that means is he's reinterpreting the text of not paying excessive ransom to be a fairly unlikely case where the person's life is not in danger. Now, that's pretty rare. It's almost never going to be the case that his life is not in danger, but that's his interpretation. So as a result, therefore, the Gilad Shalit transaction, according to Ravaji Yosef, was in fact a permissible thing to do because his life was very definitely in danger, and what's going to happen to people in the future is uncertain. Maybe Israel will protect people from the terrorists. And Ravavadja says, you got to deal with the here and now and don't worry about the, the future. So you see, this is a fundamental argument, how to interpret the text of the, of the Pidyon Shvuyan. Now, let me mention an interesting historical precedent. Maybe you, you learned this. Uh, in the 1200s in Germany, there was a very, very great uh, rabbi. His name was Rabbi Meir me Rottenberg. Rottenberg is a city in Germany. He's abbreviated Maharam me Rottenberg. One of the great, great uh, postkim, one of the great Talmudic commentators, and the like. And he was actually kidnapped by German nobility, and uh, they demanded uh, an extreme ransom, a very high ransom of seven million golders, or whatever the coin was. And the community wanted to pay it. The community wanted to pay it. And he poskined for the community that they were not allowed to pay his ransom. And the reason was, based on this ruling, that you don't pay excessive ransoms because that will encourage 
hostage taking in the future. So he instructed the community not to ransom him and he spent the last seven years of his life essentially in prison. He, he, he died eventually. And uh, of course, it, it was an interesting prison because people visited him, he taught, he still had students, meaning it was more like a house arrest. He wasn't in, a, in like a prison cell. But still, for seven years, he didn't have a minion, didn't go to show, whatever it is. And this was his psak. Now, interestingly enough, when he died, they didn't want to release the body for burial until they paid a ransom. And eventually, I think, listen, I mean, eventually they did pay the ransom. I, mean, I don't think he would have been happy with that because if he didn't want them to ransom him when he was alive, he wouldn't want it when he was dead. But eventually somebody uh, did raise the money and uh, I think it was like five years after he died and the body was <clears throat> no, no fresh. And uh, that was the story of Maharam Mi Rutenberg. So now this gives, gives rise to a final aspect I want to raise. That is... You know, Israel does hostage releases not only for live Jews that are kidnapped, but it also does it to get back dead bodies. Right? Sometimes uh, the enemies hold Jews that are already dead and we want to get the bodies back to give them kavura, to give them burial. And they'll say, release a thousand terrorists in exchange for dead bodies. Now here, this is very tricky. Even if you accept Ravavaji Yosef's rule that in order to save somebody's life we can give in to demands even if that may endanger people in the future. But that's to save somebody's life. If somebody's already dead, yeah, there's a mitzvah to bury him, but are we allowed to endanger future people? in order to get back a dead body? Meaning, like the opinion that says you couldn't release Gilad Shalit even when he's alive, then Kalvachomer, you couldn't do it for a dead body. But my question is, according to Rav Ovadji Yosef, that you could do it to, get, to save a person, would there be a, any heter at all to do it for a dead, a dead body? That's very problematical. But some have said a heter, and they've said an interesting heter. The heter is the following idea. And that is, one of the things that gives a soldier the courage to go on fighting is the sense that his army and his nation will never abandon him. The sense that they have my back. They will struggle to rescue me if I'm captured and they will even struggle to get my body for a burial. So, this is, this is really very unproven and speculative, but here is the thing. If a soldier knows ahead of time that if he dies, no one's going to bother to get his body back, that may have some type of effect on combat morality. I'm sorry, not morality, I mean combat morale. That's what I mean, combat morale. And that would mean that they'll fight with less enthusiasm, and maybe more people will die from the diminution of combat morale than from the release of the terrorists. Now, how on earth are you going to prove that? There is no way you, you could prove that one way or the other. But some have argued that there's a life-saving component in getting back a dead body, just as there's a life-saving component in getting back somebody who's alive. 
based on combat morale. So there are, you know, a tailoring for this, but uh, it's a difficult, uh, difficult issue. Now, why am I bringing this up in a discussion about live organ donation? Because essentially, it's the same type of problem, although in a smaller level. And that is, if you are facing somebody who has immediate danger, and unless you intervene, they're going to die. But if you intervene, you're subjecting yourself to a possible long-term danger. Do I say, intervene and don't worry about future consequences? Or do I say, if there are going to be future dangerous consequences, then you shouldn't intervene? So if you think about this, giving a kidney is kind of a similar type of problem to ransoming the captives or hostage release because you have this immediate situation that you're facing which may have long-term repercussions, right? So it's a very, so this is an example, I think, of something that is a totally unrelated subject that conceptually, this is one of the fascinating ideas in Torah, that ideas in the halakhic system that are not explicitly connected can share a common theme. Yeah. So I feel like that halakhic ruling only really applies if you're already in the situation. But what, how do you look at it in terms of should I put myself on a donor list not even knowing there's a specific person who needs part of my liver? Yeah, that's, that's a very, very good question. Uh, it seems that, that we are very lenient in not having to put yourself on a list, meaning once you're the donor, uh, then, uh, well, even then you're not obligated, but it's a good thing to give. And if it's bone marrow, once you're the donor, you would be obligated uh, to give because that's not threatening your life. But it does say you don't have to put yourself in that situation if you, if you don't have the knowledge that uh, you are a person that's a compatible donor. Um, now, I've heard it said, I, I've, yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, I've heard it said that there were cases where people uh, who could give bone marrow and they, you know, they were tested and they were compatible with someone that needed a donation refused to do so because they couldn't take off from work and they would have to take off a week from work and they said, I can't uh, afford it. Now, that's a, that, in one way, that, that's a very awful thing. I mean, you're not going to save a life because you're going to have to take off from work. Uh, obviously, halacha says, if you can save a life, you have to lose your job if necessary. But on the other hand, it should really be the responsibility, at least of the Jewish community, to be sure that somebody does not suffer the economic consequences. Meaning to say, uh, instead of telling the person, oh, lose your job and uh, give the bone marrow, our response should actually be, we will either get you a job or we'll pay you your salary, we'll, we will give you what you need because it's not fair that only this one person should suffer all of that thing. It should be spread by the whole Jewish community as part of their stuck obligation. Yeah. Um, I completely understand the parallel between organ donation and uh, ransom money. Yeah. There's the uncertainty with the repercussions are significantly diminished by medicine and it's like a one life versus one life, whereas like for one yes, yes. And for like other Western uh, countries, for example, France, like a lot of times they'll say like, no, we're not gonna like save this one family that's detained in like Cameroon, for example. 
but then under the table they will, so then they don't incentivize other rebel groups to like capture yeah. citizens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. why couldn't like I know it's complicated with like transparency and everything, but like maybe in some cases like Israel could afford to like under the table like like pay money or release? You know, it could very well be. For example, I, I, you could see an example of if the money could be guaranteed that it would go to, you know, water projects or sewers, you know, so, something that uh, would be non-threatening to Israeli security, there might be might, there might be possible ways to work it out. Uh, all I'm saying is that um, the Palestinian Authority itself is so rife with corruption that, like, anything, any dollar you give, give them... Uh, somehow funds terrorism. You know, it's almost impossible. Now, maybe at some point in the future, there may be, uh, as you say, transparency, there may be controls, there may be ways of monitoring money, and then you can rethink this, meaning this is not, by definition, an etched-in-stone type of problem. But under the current configuration, anything you give them goes to terrorism. I mean, they dig these tunnels, these awful tunnels that uh, come in under Israel and release terrorists and, 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 and the like. Okay, yeah. Um, <clears throat> relating to like the bone marrow, and you said like if they they won't donate because they think they'll lose their job. What if you get like you know that cheap thing that you swap and then yep. sometimes you get matched. What if you get matched to someone and you could save their life, but you're like terrified. Like there's people I'm sure in the world who get matched that just say no because oh yeah scared. yeah many people do is say that, no. They're is scared. that like a horrible? Like, well, you know, it depends. I mean, as they say, if you are, if you have a real reason to be scared, uh, then you know you it's don't have to put. Because they're scared because it's going to hurt. Like basically, the reason why people yeah. donate donate blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I understand that psychologically, these these could be very real to a person. But mm-hmm. but I think the Torah says you got to. You have to give. Yeah, you got to overcome mm-hmm. uh, fears that are not really rational fears because yeah. you're talking about saving a life. Mm-hmm. So if it's yeah. not saving a life, then do what you want. But you can't like not save a life because uh, you're, scared you're scared of something of that doesn't have a real basis mm-hmm. uh, to be scared about. Okay. Okay. I feel so like even a person with that fear would agree that they don't want to be part of a religion where such a fear exempts you from saving a life. Yeah. Well, you're I'm, looking at a child who needs yeah. their life saved. Even a person with that irrational fear can see that that fear should. Well, yeah, because certainly if they if they needed it, they wouldn't they wouldn't someone else to have that feeling towards them. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's very correct. I don't think those are rational. I mean, I know I have friends who are like have panic attacks if they see a needle. No, it's very true. You know, fear yeah. is a, fear is a real thing. You know, there, there are, for example, uh, women. I mean, men too, who are absolutely phobic uh, of water and and mm-hmm. going to the mikvah, they they will have panic attacks that you know, uh, they literally you know. Could are they not obligated to go then? Well, they do have to go to the mikvah, but there's all sorts of ways. They have a person who goes in with them. You know, it's, it's a, there, there's a there's a process that's been developed in some mikvahs for people who are absolutely phobic. Yeah. It's, it's not so much uh, water, but of, of having their head underwater. That that mm-hmm. that's extremely scary uh, for some people because you're in an environment you know where you can't uh, breathe for a second or, or whatever it is. Okay, alrighty. So that's uh, the connection I wanted to uh, wanted to draw. Uh, so now I'm going to move to another aspect. I'll probably have to continue it next week, but another aspect of organ donation, and that is the issue of heart heart transplants, really. Uh, I remember the first heart transplant. It was, I think, in 1967. Uh, I was uh, only a two-year-old then. No, okay. And um, this was Dr. Christian Barnard of, of uh, 
Cape Town, South Africa, and he did the first heart transplant, and then the, the second ones were done in Houston. Uh, Michael DeBakey was a pioneering heart uh, transplant surgeon. Uh, the early heart transplants were highly experimental, and they only did it for the absolute sickest people. In other words, people who were going to die in the next week. So they would try a heart transplant, and instead they died the next day, meaning uh, the initial people uh, died in less time than they would have, uh, but, but, but they only took people who were going to die in a few days. But Baruch Hashem, uh, there's been a learning curve, and right now uh, heart transplants can be a very, very successful surgery. Uh, there have been people who have lived five years, I think 10 years, even 10 years, uh, in reasonable health, with you know, being able to function well. So heart transplants are, are no longer experimental surgery. Uh, they're fairly well established. Now, ideally, halachically, you can see the problem, halachically, if we could ever develop an artificial heart, that would be great. That would be wonderful. There's no halachic problems with artificial hearts. And indeed, even animal hearts. You know, it's interesting. The reform movement has um, a, a, a Jewish law committee, a law committee, and they put out responsa, interestingly enough. Uh, and they had a responsa, is a Jew allowed to receive a, a pig's heart? Can you have a pig's heart as a heart transplant and the like? Uh, it's interesting that the reform movement would, would discuss this issue because uh, according to halacha, the iser of eating non-kosher food is only eating. You can't eat non-kosher food. Uh, you can have transplantation of a non-kosher animal uh, in you, whether it's a dog's heart or a, a, even a pig's heart. And the reason is because the halachic idea is once something is connected to your body, it becomes you. It becomes you meaning it's no longer a pig's heart. It becomes a halachically, it's a human heart. So the laws of kashras are very, very limited to one particular activity, and that's the activity of eating. If something is not eating, then uh, you're allowed to, to use it. Now the problem with both the artificial heart and the animal heart is, of course, rejection. In fact, rejection is the big problem of all transplantation surgery. That is, we have in our bodies a wonderful thing, a very important thing, uh, rejection mechanisms. The body attacks uh, foreign mechanisms. That's how it attacks disease and, and the like. But the problem is, the body doesn't differentiate between good foreign agents and bad foreign agents. So even if this is a heart that's saving your life, it's going to attack it. Which is why, in transplantation surgery, you have to give what are called anti-rejection drugs that severely suppress the immune system so that the transplant will take. Now that's very good, but what that means is, this is important, when you have a suppressed immune system, you can die from a common cold. The only reason a cold doesn't kill us is because we have an immunity response. If you get the immunity response down to zero, almost zero, so the good news is the organ will be accepted. The bad news is anything could kill a person. And by the way, hospitals are filled. In fact, a hospital is a bad place to go when you're sick. Hospitals are filled with germs. 
and as a result, many transplant patients die not because of the transplant. They die because of a cold. They die because uh, somebody sneezed in the room, and that could be very, very devastating. But be it as it may, animal hearts have not really worked, and artificial hearts have not really worked. So instead, what we use is we use human hearts. We get hearts that are from human beings. Uh, yeah, you were going to say something? Yeah. Um, with regard to not push your animals is only for eating, yeah. not like through a feeding tube? Uh, so that's a very interesting question. Uh, but technically, technically, uh, if it's not in the mouth, if it's not in the mouth, it's through the intravenous or whatever, uh, it can be non-kosher. Or even directly in the stomach. Yeah. That, that, uh, well... Okay, the stomach is a little bit of a question because, because the, there, there's an argument in the Gemara. Mm-hmm. Is the definition of eating through the mouth mm-hmm. or is the definition of eating entering the stomach? So, so there, there you would have a shayla. Uh, if something enters my stomach but not through the mouth, is it halachically eating? So that would be more of a question. Uh, but if it's not going through either my mouth or my digestive system, it goes straight into my, uh, my, my bloodstream, uh, then uh, kashrus laws do not apply uh, for that circumstance. Okay? Yeah. What about things like non-kosher medicines? Like if there's a non-kosher medicine, that's going to save your life. Okay, so that's a separate... Well, well, well no, no. No, if it's, it, no, no, no. If it's going to save your life, then of course you take it. That, that's not the question. But let's assume it's not a life-threatening thing. Just a non-kosher medicine. So there, it very much depends on whether it's flavored or not flavored. Meaning, if it's a chewable medicine or it's a syrup that has a syrupy taste, then if it's not kosher, you're not allowed to take it unless, unless it's life-threatening, for example. Blood pressure medicine is for sure life-threatening. If, on the other hand, it's a pill that you swallow that has no taste or if you would bite into it, it would be a bitter taste. So halachically, it is permitted because that's not considered eating. Even though you're taking it by mouth, it's not considered eating because it's not edible. It's so bitter that even a dog would not eat it. So as a result, uh, non-chewable solid medicines do not have a kashrus problem, uh, but chewables or liquids that are flavored do have a kashrus problem. What about a capsule? Like krill oil. Okay, so so a capsule is a good... A, a, a krill is what? Krill is the algae? Fish what is, oil. It's like... So is the problem the capsule? See, the capsule is gelatin. That's not kosher. And the inside... So so it depends. It, it, you can't taste it because it goes... Yeah, so, so this would be the rule. Uh, since there is no taste, or the taste would be bitter or no taste at all, so halakhically, uh, you're permitted to take it. Can you bring it into your kosher home and is your home still kosher? Oh, yeah, yeah, your home is still Wait, kosher. So you can... Yeah. I've been having, a, I've been going through hoops trying to find like kosher. I thought that because the gelatin of a capsule is not. Yeah. So, so, no, no, so, so listen. If you can get kosher, it is better to get kosher. I, I don't mean, I don't mean to oh. say you don't have to. But on the other hand, if you need the medicine, and it only comes in the capsule variety. You are allowed to take it. Now, now, I want to point out this is only if you're sick. Meaning, if it's a vitamin, kind of an optional vitamin, then you shouldn't do it. But, but I'm talking about people that are sick, even if it's non-life-threatening. But you're, you know, you have a doctor's prescription that you need to take this type of of, of medicine. Okay, uh, because that's based on the idea that things that either don't have a taste or things that are bitter are not considered edible. And if they're not edible, then you're not eating it. You can't eat that which is not edible, 
and therefore it does, the laws of kosher do, do not apply. Yeah. Um, someone receiving nutrition straight to their stomach, do they make a bracha? Uh, this would be, this would depend on the same machlokas. Is eating considered to be mouth or is eating considered to be uh, stomach? But certainly if it comes just directly into the uh, yeah. veins, then not. Then, then you would not make it. Like a G2. Yeah, so, so the halacha is that since it is a machlokas, so whenever there's a doubt whether you need to make a bracha, we, we pass and do not make a bracha because it might be a bracha in vain. So we do not make a bracha under those, under those circumstances. Okay? Alrighty. Alrighty. So, uh, so hearts come from human beings. Right? We don't use artificial hearts because they don't work yet, yet. And we don't use animal hearts because they don't work yet. Maybe they will work. Right now, they don't work. Now, what type of human being gives the heart? So here's the problem. The problem is, when a person dies, the heart muscle deteriorates very, very, very rapidly. Like within 15 minutes. Because if the heart muscle is not getting oxygen, it simply deteriorates. Which means almost immediately after a person dies, the heart is not suitable for transplantation. So how do you get a heart? So this is, introduces an idea that is called brain death. Let me explain this. I'm gonna talk for a while, probably the remainder of the time, I'm gonna talk about secular definitions, then we'll, next week we'll talk about halakhic definitions. What is the secular definition of when is a person dead? When are you dead? So the secular, if you looked up a law dictionary, right? there are law dictionaries, the dictionaries that define legal terms. For those of you that uh, are going to law school or have gone to law school, Black's Law Dictionary is the famous law dictionary. So death was defined, if you looked at it 50 years ago, death is defined as irreversible cessation of vital signs, vital means life, vital signs, including respiration and heartbeat. Meaning there were two things that had to stop. You're no longer breathing and you have no pulse, meaning your heart is not beating. In other words, there were two things that made you dead and it had to be irreversible. In other words, it's not going to come back. You're not breathing, and you don't have heartbeat. And if a doctor determines that there's no way to bring it back, now, that's also going to be a question, so we wait a little bit, but if there's no way to bring it back, that equals dead. You're dead. Now, in the olden days, those two things always happened at the same time, because think about this. If you're not breathing, your heart is not getting oxygen. If your heart is not getting oxygen, it stops pumping, right? So, so really, when there's a lack of breathing, there will always be the lack of heartbeat. Maybe it'll be a minute apart or whatever it is. But the problem was around 50 years ago, maybe 60 years ago, various machines were invented called ventilators or respirators. And what these machines can do is they're artificial breathing machines meaning they can pump air into your uh, lungs, which will go to your heart. Which means, even if a person was no longer capable of breathing, 
the air could be supplied by a machine, and as a result, the heart could still be beating. Meaning, what the ventilator created was, it, it disassociated heartbeat from respiration, from natural respiration. In other words, in the olden days, when you didn't have natural respiration, you didn't have heartbeat. Today, we can do artificial respiration through a ventilator or a respirator, and there could be heartbeat. So hence, in the olden days, heart transplants would have been impossible because you can't take the heart when the person's alive. You're going to have to wait till they stop breathing. If they stop breathing, the heart muscle deteriorates. But starting in around 1968, right when they did the first heart transplant, a new definition of death was developed. Again, the old definition was irreversible cessation of respiration and heartbeat. That was the old definition. The new definition of death, it's not so new anymore, but it goes back to uh, the late 60s, early 70s, was something that was called brain death. Brain death. And it goes by a few different names. Some people call it brain death. Some people call it whole brain death. Some people call it brain stem death. And some people abbreviate it BSD, brain stem death. Now, be sure you understand the difference between brain death, brain stem death, etc and coma or persistent vegetative state. Not the same at all. When a person is in a coma, they lack consciousness, they're unconscious. But their brain stem that controls the automatic processes of the body is still working. For example, a person in a coma might be able to breathe without a respirator because the, the stem of their brain is still controlling breathing and temperature and everything else. So you might call that person. See, in common speech, they'll say, oh, that person in a coma is brain dead. Medically, that is absolutely not true. A person in a coma is described as PVS, persistent vegetative state. They are not brain dead legally and halachically, legally and halachically, if you were to remove a heart from a person in a, uh, who is in a persistent vegetative state, that would be murder. It's murder halachically, for sure, and it's even murder legally, because that person is not dead. That person is just unconscious. Brain death is very different. Brain death is a neurological state where not only is the uh, cerebrum, not only is the conscious part of the brain not working, but the brain stem has been destroyed as well. That's why it's called whole brain death, brain stem death, brain death. And as a result, there is no longer respiratory capacity. The person cannot breathe because the brain stem that controls breathing is destroyed. And all oxygen is delivered. 
only through an artificial machine. But here is the thing. So the, the whole brain is destroyed. The whole brain is destroyed. Now you may ask, so why is the heart beating? Because here's the thing about the heart. The heart has its own pacemaker. As long as the heart muscle, the heart is not totally controlled by the brain. As long as the heart muscle is getting oxygen, it continues to pump. Now, not forever. You can be in a coma for 100 years. No, people, no, people are in coma 50 years. Brain death, you can't be in brain death indefinitely. I mean, brain death can last no longer than six months. In other words, at some point, the heart does fail. It's like the pacemaker of the heart is like an emergency short-term mechanism that can go for a while, but then you go into cardiac arrest. So nobody can be in brain death for years. Brain death at a maximum, I think the longest recorded situation of somebody being in a clinical diagnosis of brain death is six months. But here is what's going on. Under modern law, in most of the uh, civilized world, if you want to call it civilized, a person is declared dead when there's a clinical diagnosis of brain death, even though their heart is still beating and circulating blood. And those are the ideal candidates for heart transplants because you have a healthy heart that's suffused with oxygenated blood, but the person is declared dead by this new definition. So we can cut into him take his heart and transplant it next. In other words, the point I'm making is this. Heart transplants would not have been possible under the old definition of death. Heart transplants are possible only under a new definition of death that allows a clinical diagnosis of brain death even though the heart is still beating. So you have to understand, when you are doing a heart transplant, you are cutting into a person whose heart is beating and circulating blood. But under secular law, secular law, that person has been declared dead. And that is why you are allowed to do a heart transplant. Now, one of the problems here is are you redefining a term in order to permit a procedure? Meaning to say, 70 years ago, if there would have been a respirator, that person whose heart was beating would be alive because his heart is still beating. But if he would have been alive, I couldn't do a heart transplant. So, if you want to be a little cynical, is it more than a coincidence that when they developed the ability to do a heart transplant, they found a definition that made that guy dead, which allows me to do a heart transplant. Meaning to say, it's like you, you have a result. It's like the old story about the person, somebody drove by a, a farmhouse and they saw an arrow in the target, like a perfect archer. Every single arrow was in the bullseye. So the person stopped and asked the, the farmer, he says, you are some archer. Every single arrow you shoot always goes into the bullseye. He says, well, what I do is I shoot the arrow and wherever it hits, it hits. And then I draw a bullseye around the arrow. So I'm always there. So it's kind of the same thing. We want to do a heart transplant. Hmm, how do I figure this out? 
I, I can't wait until the guy's heart stops beating because then it deteriorates. But I can't take it while the heart's beating because he's alive. Hmm. So I got to say, well, I guess he's dead. I'll just say, okay, he's not alive anymore. He's dead. In other words, you're using a definition of death. It's like somebody said once about abortion, you know, um, Somebody said uh, he really wished he could kill his... This was a cartoon. He, he wishes he could kill his 10-year-old kid. But you can't, kill, you can't kill a kid. So he said, well, let's just call it a late-term abortion at uh, the 120th month or something. You know, you know. Uh, <laughs> meaning, definitions are very tricky. Meaning to say, you can define terms to allow you to do things that you would never otherwise do. In fact, that's, in, to some ways, that's how the Holocaust worked. Right? Part of the Holocaust was the idea that Jews are not people, Jews are vermin, who happen to have a human form. And if they're vermin, well, you know, everyone said you can kill vermin. I mean, that, that's psychologically how people deal with these issues. They redefine. So that's one issue. Again, this is, uh, I'm going to get to the halacha. I'm going to get to the halacha. But I just want to point out that if I would have had more faith in brain death had it been an independent definition, but the fact that brain death comes on the scene exactly when heart transplants come on the scene indicates that this was a definition that was driven by expediency rather than fundamental principle. In other words, brain death enables heart transplants Without a brain death definition, you couldn't do a heart transplant. Yeah. So does when someone is brain dead and they're like they die and they're immediately put on a respirator, is yes. there potential for that person to regain brain function? Okay, so here's the thing. In theory, if the diagnosis was correct, and that'll be a problem too. It is impossible. Right. This is a, totally destroyed. Which means if somebody gets better, and there are some cases, that means he was not brain dead to begin with. Brain death is not a recoverable state. Now that does mean, just to just to give you again another secular, because I'm giving you this information because you need, in order to understand the halacha, you need to know a little bit about the secular information here. This does mean that the ideal heart transplant donor the donor, the best type of kid, uh, the best type of donor is a teenager on a motorcycle who was not wearing a helmet. Meaning to say what you want is you want a strong body, you want a healthy heart, and you want a smashed brain. Because that's perfect, perfect combination. The brain is totally smashed. All breathing is done only through a respirator, but the heart muscle is strong and good because you know the, the, the oxygen is oxygenating the heart. So they've even said, although I think this is kind of a black humor joke, that when different states in the United States wanted to pass mandatory helmet laws, that if you wear or drive a motorcycle, you have to wear a helmet. So they say the opposition to the law was the organ donor lobby. Uh, because the organ donor lobby said, if you make everybody wear a helmet, we'll have fewer people no. who will be brain dead for organ donor. Again, it sounds no, like a, no, no, it, no. it probably was a bad joke, but but nevertheless, this is what uh, <laughs> this is what uh, people people said about the organ donor lobby. Okay, so this is very critical to understand. We do not take hearts from people who are totally dead under the old definition. We take hearts from people that are brain dead. 
But brain dead is not the same as coma. We do not take hearts from people in comas, but we take hearts from brain dead. Now, when somebody is brain dead, that means, number one, the brain stem is destroyed. That means there is no capacity of respiration. That means there are no reflexes. That means if you jab uh, them with a needle, there will be no response, unlike a coma, for example. That means if you shine a uh, light in their eyes, the pupils do not respond. In other words, they seem to be pretty dead. In other words, they're dead, but the heart is still beating. Right? That is brain death. All of this is different than a coma. Again, I, I know I'm repeating myself. In the case of a coma, a person in a coma will respond to a needle. Right? Uh, a person in a coma, their eyes will respond to a light. There will be involuntary reflexes. Brain death is much beyond that. And as I say, a person might be in a coma for years and years and years and come out of it, and even come out of it. Uh, a, a, a true diagnosis of brain death is irreversible short of a divine miracle, meaning if somebody comes out of brain death, either it was a supernatural miracle like the resurrection of the dead, which is possible, or alternatively, there was a misdiagnosis, which is probably what happened. Now, there actually was a case, not, not involving a Jewish kid, in Pennsylvania, where a 15-year-old was declared brain dead, brain dead, so the parents gave permission to remove his heart for transplantation. And, I mean, imagine this. He's on the operating table. They're about to cut into him. Oh, my God. And he wakes up and he says, <gasps> Where am I? No, no. Well, I assume that some resident got in a real lot of trouble uh, there uh, because he, you know, maybe Hashem, maybe Hashem did a miracle, but, I, I, you know, we, we don't assume that, he actually. He no, the the knife was coming it's down. About to be. Yeah, oh. mamish. You know, oh. it's like the Akeda, right? <laughs> so, so the point I want to make is that wholly apart, we're going to talk about next week. Does Halacha recognize brain death? But even if Halacha recognizes brain death, we have to know some of the cases are mistaken diagnosis. This was an absolutely horrendous mistake. The guy was alive; he was misdiagnosed. How did that happen? Okay, well, we'll talk more about this, but just be aware, therefore, that not all cases of brain death are even brain death. Yeah? On a pragmatic level, when they do this, if they have like less than 15 minutes, do they have the brain dead person in the same operating room? Yes, that's exactly how it works. One table, brain death person, other table is the respirator is going on all the time, the heart is fresh, Mm -hmm. and then they cut and they have to move it and transfer it within uh, 10 minutes. Into the person who's yeah. alive, but he, like, that's correct. They have to remove the old heart, right? Right. I thought I have a family friend who actually received a heart of a teenage wow. teenager in a car accident. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that they brought the heart. Maybe I just misunderstood. I thought that Well, I don't know if it has to be the same. I, 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 often it is in the same room, but you know, if it's the next room, it's okay too. But it has to be in in proximity. It has to be really, really quick, and uh, therefore the surgeons have to work fast. Now they can do a lot of the prep work on the recipient while the person is still on the respirator. The person, you know, the donor is on the respirator, and they could remove the old heart and put them on a machine, a heart lung machine, for a short short while. And then when they're ready, they make the cut and they have to bring the heart immediately 
immediately over because even within 10 or 15 minutes, the heart will become uh, unsuitable for transplantation. What happened to the other person? Which other person? Like the person that was about to receive the heart. Oh. Uh, was he already cut open? Was his heart removed? I, I don't know. I have to check. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what happened. Uh, you're right. There's a big problem because there may be two people, uh, yeah, maybe that he died. I have to check. I'll check the story. Um, okay, but so we'll, we'll stop here. But again, um, so next week I'm going to continue this. I'm going to talk about the halacha, the halacha, because obviously, uh, if you're a Jew, the most important issue is when is a person dead? Because if the person's alive, you can't kill him to save him. What if he's not Jewish? Oh, I'll talk about that too. Good, good question. Maybe you could. That's a, that's a very good question. Um, now, you could say spiritually the definition of death is when the neshama leaves the body. And that is the definition of death. The only problem is we need a physical way of measuring that. In other words, halacha has to concretize spiritual ideas with physical things. So yeah, you're right. When the neshama leaves the guf, the person is dead. But what are the signs that Hashem has given us when we assume that happens. And therefore we have to understand, is it the destruction of the brain or the destruction of the heart? Right? So that'll, that'll be the, the shayla, head or, or, or heart. Okay. Okay.